Hey, it's Mark. Since arriving on the scene a few years ago, private equity firms have catalyzed a new cohort of pharma commercialization platforms. Bolstered by this infusion, the marketing firms have looked to fill out service offerings. Their acquisition sprees and remonetization deals have enabled them to scale up and acquire market share. Until now, their most sought-after subsegment has probably been the market access agency. But with most of the payer-oriented shops accounted for, either having been scooped up by a PE-backed entity or one of the traditional strategics, speculation has begun to build concerning their next big acquisition target. Enter real-world data. RWD has application along the whole continuum from molecule to market, and much like market access, has the potential to help marketers establish differentiation and competitive advantage. But it won't come cheap. All the RWD firms have double-digit valuations. This week on the podcast, will the new strategics make moves to acquire an RWD property? Leslie Orn, CEO of Trinity Life Sciences, joins us to provide her take on the future of the pharma commercialization sector, including whether RWD is the new market access and whether Trinity's approach to scaling through M&A, partnerships and investment could catch on elsewhere. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark, this week, Congress held its first hearing on the use of psychedelics as mental health care for veterans. I'll discuss some of the main takeaways of the hearing and what this means for future psychedelic treatments. And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week, we're talking about the $261 million ruling in the Take Care of Maya Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital case. Lesha takes us through TikTok's shadow work trend and its effect on mental health. Then we finish with a viral video documenting the case of a 38-year-old woman who went to the hospital to receive an ostomy, only to wake up to the news that she had stage 3 colon cancer. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMNM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. This is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMNM, and I'm speaking with Leslie Orn, CEO of Trinity Life Sciences. Leslie, welcome to the MMNM Podcast. Thanks so much, Mark. Happy to be here. Great. So you took on your current role as CEO there this past July. So you're all of what, four months in and just wanted to see how's it going? Yeah, no, thanks. Absolutely. I did. A, I'm a long timer here at the company over 20 years, but I just took on the CEO role as of July. So I'm on day about 110 or so and um, just starting to figure out a, a lot of the priorities that we've got to do and, and excited to tackle them. Excellent. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, as you said, you've been with the company for a while. You oversaw the company's uh, acquisition strategy. Uh, It's made several of those, including Blueprint Research Group, CB Partners, and D-Cube Analytics, kind of building out a nice analytics infrastructure there. And uh, you also uh, led the strategic partnerships with Bain and Company, as well as Havas Health and You. And I wanted to see if you wouldn't mind uh, talking a little bit more about the rationale behind this evolution of Trinity from a narrowly positioned, smart boutique firm to something with broader appeal. Yeah, thanks for that question, Mark. I'd love to, to tell the story. So everything we do at Trinity is really driven by our belief, our, our purpose that every decision impacts a life. That is, um, that is really the, the umbrella for everything that we do across all of our strategic moves, whether it's M&A or internal product development or you know, overall strategy. I mean, our vision is to have an impact on the life sciences industry and, and the patients that this industry serves. So when we're thinking about bringing other companies into the Trinity fray, when we're thinking about our strategy, that really drives us. And so everything we do is very mission-driven. Um, we're not growing for growth's sake. Um, very much the strategy is a, a belief that we can have an impact on this industry and that the best way we can do that is to scale. So you're right. Uh, when I started at Trinity, we were a strategy consultancy. I was employee number 13, and, and we were really good at what we did. Um, we brought data to the table, we brought a strategic mindset, and we helped our clients across a range of things like M&A and new product planning. Um, and that was a really strong foundation for the company. We really got to know the industry. We got to be smart. Um, we got to see what it meant to impact high-level decision-making that ultimately impacts people's lives. Um, and that's really the, the foundation and the culture that we're built on. But you're right, we've been on a, a bit of a rocket ship from a growth perspective. We've actually 
um, had two investors. We had Parthenon Capital Partners. We had Parthenon uh, Capital Partners. We have Kohlberg and Company now, which have been great partners to us um, starting in 2018 and then Kohlberg in 2021. And it's given us a bit of a shot in the arm um, in terms of what we're able to do to really expand our impact and grow the platform. So um, we've really, we've, we've kept true to our brand. You'll notice we've kept the Trinity brand through all that we've done. Um, and that's really important to us. We, we believe that Trinity for us really represents this, this fundamental uh, trio of capabilities, which is strategy and insights. Um, and in, analytics, those are really our three pillars and we're still growing them. And everything that we buy or build is really looking to enhance our either our strategic platform, our insights platform or our analytics platform. Um, so that's what we're doing. And we're still on a mission to help revolutionize the commercial model. That's what gets us up in the morning. So you're right. We've actually done five acquisitions um, over the investment period. Started with a data management company uh, called Bell Canyon. Uh, we acquired a benchmarking business called TGOS, helps companies think about size, structure, and resourcing. And then the three that you mentioned, value and access company called CB Partners, market research company called Blueprint Research Group, and most recently, D-Cube Analytics. Um, sort of self-named D-Cube actually means data-driven decisions, and that very much jives with our mission and our vision of what we're trying to do. So we fully integrated all five of those companies. That's very much our strategy. Um, we're leaning into building or buying um, things that really help us, um, properties that really help us move towards um, being the best commercial solutions provider across our range of capabilities. And that's what we're doing. Um, you did also mention we do have two um, very important partnerships, our partnership with Bain & Company, help us to really uh, elevate our brand and really get access to the C-suite at some of our clients and, and help them with some of their biggest decisions. Um, that's a, a great partnership where uh, we work together on, on sort of the, the transformational process and then we carry it through in the trenches. And our second big partnership is with Havas um, Health and You, so uh, an ad agency. Um, at Trinity, we're, we're maybe not the most creative people. Um, so uh, having an agency as one of our sister companies has really been an interesting and uh, really expansive uh, opportunity for us to grow, um, really bringing what we have to offer, again, strategy, insights, and analytics to marketing campaigns worldwide. So um, it's been a wild ride, but I think at the end of the day, um, you might see more growth from us coming, but really we're not going to grow for growth's sake. Uh, we're growing for the purpose of, of believing that we can have an impact on the industry and really help guide the industry as we revolutionize the commercial model. That's really our calling and really what drives uh, everything we're doing. Great, that, that was a really nice sum up, you know, from the recapitalization of Trinity from Pantheon Capital to Kohlberg and all the acquisitions and the public partnerships. And um, was the, the rationale, you know, you say that it was, you know, it wasn't acquiring for acquiring sake, obviously it was acquiring right. with a purpose. Um, and you know the, the very strong purpose in mind, you know, to to serve um, the the industry and to and to ultimately benefit patients. Was it also to kind of become this new strategic, you know, alongside the traditional strategics, the big the big holding companies? Was that part partially your aim? Yeah, I love that term, Mark. I might have to borrow it. The new strategic, um, for sure. Everything that we do um, in terms of our work has a very strategic lens. That's our heritage. That's where we've come from and, and what made us great as a small company. So we, we really make sure we're bringing strategy to the forefront. Um, I kind of think of strategy work as sort of like the visible part of an iceberg, right? There's the visible part, but there's a lot beneath the surface of, of what uh, we can do now as an integrated strategic firm. Um, we can really, uh, we are one PL company. So you're right, we're not like a holding company um, in that, you know, we're um, a house of brands or, you know, multiple competing priorities across P&Ls. We are one P&L, we bring the right tool to the table, no matter what our clients need. And I, I think that's really um, helping us to, to, to do what's right for our clients. So whether um, we're, we're reaching for part of the, the companies that we've integrated and bringing them to the table or any of our own homegrown functions, um, you know, we're very, very integrated. So when a client actually sees us show up, we could show up with a strategic advisor, um, market researcher, somebody with a deep value and, anal and 
um, access background and an analytics background all on one team. Um, so we can really connect the dots for our clients and not have to rely on them to do so. But I do love that term new strategic. Um, I think we believe very much in integrating and, and showing up um, as a, a client centric team. Um, and that is certainly what we'll continue to do. So thanks for coining that. Hopefully you won't mind if I, uh, if I borrow it. Not at all, please go, go ahead. That, that's my gift to you. <laughs> you know, the, and I like you, the way you put it, you know, a house of brands versus a branded house, one PNL integrated. I was going to ask you, that's the new frontier, if you will, that we've seen with a lot of these other pharma commercialization platforms that have scaled, that have pursued market share through PE backing as they've gone to say the next phase of their remonetization, their recapitalization is to make sure that now that they've amassed all these parts, that they're bigger than the sum of their parts. And that comes through an integration. How do you put the pieces together? How do you, how do you think about that, making sure that, the off, that what you bring to the table is bigger than the sum of its parts? Yeah, great question. Um, quite simply, integration is not easy, right? Getting the M&A done is most certainly less than half the battle. Um, and, and then the real work starts of actually truly integrating. Um, we integrate front and back end processes. So, um, you know, obviously we integrate from a company perspective on all things. So we have integrated systems. We have access to each other's knowledge capital. We have access to each other's, um, you know, really what makes everybody special, which is, is all of that knowledge that's been accumulated over the years. But more importantly, I think is really the front end integration. Um, we have to start with the people. People are number one across all of our businesses, whether it's data, analytics, technology, or anything else, it's it's still about the people. So the very first thing we have to do is build trust uh, with people and make sure that people realize that Trinity can be a really great home for people of, from all different backgrounds and doing all sorts of different jobs globally. So, um, you know, for instance, we've got three offices in India now. We've got two offices in Europe. Um, we've got individuals throughout Latin America and Southeast Asia. Um, we want to be a destination for leaders. Um, and so as we acquire properties, we must create trust um, in order to really build um, that people base, that knowledge base that we're trying to do. And, and then the next move is to move to the clients and make sure that the clients are having a unified Trinity first experience. It's not that easy. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of our competitors not do it so well, um, such that, you know, it's still legacy brand this, legacy brand that. We go to our clients as Trinity. And whether you're working with advisory or insights or analytics, um, you're going to get the same quality, people driven by the same values. And we're going to bring the right tool to the table in a very integrated way. Um, so that that is hard work. And I think that sets Trinity apart from some of the other uh, PE-backed strategics that have grown through M&A and have either, um, in some cases, sort of lost the value of those brands over, you know, the integration process as people, the, the human capital walked out the door, or in other cases, you know, weren't able to integrate at all and just left these, you know, different companies with their full brand name and not bringing the value of the integration to clients. So we've got to integrate people, we've got to integrate for our clients. And of course, the company sort of comes along with that. But um, that will be a, a continued philosophy for us. Um, we will always work hard to integrate and keep the talent that we're so lucky to bring into the Trinity family. Um, and, you know, I think uh, it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's something that we think is really important and what's differentiating for us as a platform versus potential other companies out there. Appreciate you asking the question, but, uh, you know, it all starts with the people. Sure. Let's switch gears for a second and look toward the future. Conventional wisdom would point to pharma CEOs outsourcing more, including that commercialization piece. You know, the, the pipeline is so, so big, so strong that what do they need to build commercial infrastructure for when they can just outsource it, right? And as such, um, platforms like yours are, are seeking to close whatever gaps they may still have in their offerings. And you said that, I believe that uh, Trinity is still on the hunt for acquisitions uh, or open to new partnerships. Can you share maybe 
what some of those boardroom conversations around M&A or new combinations uh, might look like and what some of your priorities might be going forward? Yeah, sure. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we are on a journey to help revolutionize the commercial model. So we will continue to buy or build best-in-class offerings that help our client companies to do that. We'd like to have a best-in-breed offering across every commercial function. So for us, commercialization starts very early. Um, this is not something that begins at launch. Uh, we want to help during the clinical development process. We want to help optimize the development of the right drugs for the right patients in the right way. Then, of course, we come to, to market readiness and launch readiness, and we want to make sure that we're finding those patients out in the wide, wide world and, and enabling these drugs to get to them. And then, of course, we've got life cycle management of making sure that we can get, um, you know, we can really do it the right way of, of managing drugs and, and getting that value to patients. So we will continue to buy um, or build things that help us move towards that vision of revolutionizing the commercial model. Um, as I said, we talk a lot in the boardroom that we're not going to grow just because something is for sale or because growth is good for growth's own sake. Um, I think that's a very short-term driver and not something that's sustainable. And we intend to be a company that lasts. So we'll continue to be very mission-driven in what we're doing. Um, I do think one thing we're leaning heavily into analytics and technology. We believe that that's one way that the commercial model will revolutionize um, over the years. And we've got to connect the dots of the data with actual improvements in care and improvements in patient outcomes. That's something that we'd like to play a really critical role in. That's really the driver for our DCube acquisition, which brought with it a technology platform, um, not just a single point use case, but actually a platform that enables us to develop apps that actually democratize data across decision makers at our clients. And those apps really help improve patient outcomes because you can see what's happening um, in the data. You can see, um, are your drugs being distributed equitably? Are those patients having the right outcomes? Are there gaps in care? So we'll continue to lean into data and analytics um, as we build and grow. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of across the commercial spectrum. Even with our partnership with Havas, which I mentioned earlier, something that we're really leaning into is how we can use our data and analytics capabilities to really push the boundaries on how marketing is done, how you build a brand, how you ensure a best-in-class patient experience. So where Havas is making all of the, the creative and the beautiful images and, um, and stories that they're, that they're creating, um, we're helping figure out where to channel that information. Uh, what channel are you actually delivering it through? To what patients at what time? So, you know, we're, we're loving that aspect of, of data and analytics as well. So I think you'll see more along those lines from us. Terrific. And since you mentioned the analytics piece of your strategy, insights and analytics mantra, and that that will be a priority going forward. I wanted to touch on real world data as well. Yes. Uh, some have said that Worry's market access shops were sort of the preeminent takeover target of the last few years. Now that most of the payer-oriented firms have been scooped up either by a PE-backed strategic or one of the traditional holding company firms that a new um, a new, uh, you know, desirable commercialization piece is emerging in the in the real world data firm, and that real world data really informs all of the phases of the life sciences life cycle, and so it's really helpful. And I know you have the partnership with Komodo Health as well. Can we touch on that for a minute and get your take on real world data and where, where you see that heading? Yeah, we we have we have been into the data world since the very beginning, and you know even. The day I started at Trinity, uh, our founder put a slide up, John Corcoran, put a slide up in front of me that said data plus strategy equals Trinity. Um, and, you know, the PowerPoint animated and it was quite innovative at the time. <laughs> um, but in any case, yes, data is part of our heritage. Um, you know, we we use data for our strategy. We help our clients manage their data. Um, and obviously, I think we're kind of on the cusp of a of a data revolution. There's data coming, real world data coming from so many corners of the earth right now from a, from a collection perspective. It's, it's a huge task, right? And our, our clients are sort of swamped by data. 
there's data coming from every retail pharmacy. There's data coming from insurers and in the form of claims data. There's unstructured data coming from electronic health records. There's data coming from, you know, um, Apple watches and all of the wearables. So, um, we as Trinity decided that our best strength is used in, in staying data agnostic. We are not sellers or providers of data. We're integrators of data. Um, we have partnerships in the public domain with Komodo, which is really the most comprehensive um, integrated data set that we've yet encountered. Um, we're also partnered with Symphony Health um, with their uh, more traditional data coming from pharmacies and, and from traditional claims. And we also buy uh, several pieces of data from other providers across the industry. So we kind of see ourselves as integrators of that data, users of that data. Um, and we believe that it's our job to figure out how to manage that data such that you can actually use it for analysis and then to help direct that data out to the particular use cases where data is needed. So for instance, the marketing team needs to understand how to use data to direct their campaign. The sales team needs to use that data to direct their field force. The market access team needs to use that data to prove value and prove uh, value and value-based care arrangements, things like that. So um, our perspective on RWD is that uh, we will continue to collect and harvest it. Um, our real spot in the ecosystem is to help unlock that data for our clients. Um, we've thought about whether we should own data. And I think in a lot of ways, data is becoming commoditized. And, you know, if we found the right, truly unique and differentiating data asset, would we be willing to own an RWD property? Maybe, maybe. Um, but at this point, I think our best position is really to stay agnostic to the data source and use the right data for the right question that our clients bring to us. But we do think that, that this is the way the market will move. And this is how commercialization will, will modernize itself. And um, we want to be on the front end of, of driving that revolution with data. Sure. Thank you for addressing that. And speaking of new business combinations, another one that some people envis envisage is promotional or AOR type agencies taking a closer look at how they can be leaders on that tech and AI front, yes. especially as generative AI continues to evolve in this industry. That or one of the large platforms making a transformational move to purchase a large data business. Uh, but they, they don't come cheaply, do they? No, no, the data, data is very expensive, whether you're buying it as a client or, you know, as a company uh, like ours, but, but you're right. I think the AORs in particular are realizing that the shotgun approach of, you know, uh, direct to consumer advertising on Super Bowl spots and things like that are, are really just not cost effective. And in, an, um, you know, we're going to see our, a lot of clients tightening up from a margin perspective as things like the IRA come to the front and, you know, other, you know, other aspects of, of budget management. So we have to be smarter with the money that our clients are investing in promotion. So when I think about our partnership with Havas, that's our big value proposition is how can we be smarter with your investment in marketing? How can we be smarter with your investment in media? such that we can get the right message to the right person in the right way. That's got to be data-driven. Um, that's where, you know, the fact that we house a lot of data um, and make that accessible to Havas, to Havas's clients, to our own clients, that's a, a big part of, of our strategy is, again, democratizing that data across the spectrum. Um, it's not... It's not cheap, but it's worthwhile. Um, and ultimately, we do believe that this will actually help um, make the industry more efficient with how they do promotion, broadly speaking. Sure. One, one other question about Trinity and, and its future path. One of the other high pro probability avenues for new business combinations I've heard involves high science consulting and access businesses like Trinity's potentially aligning with high science medcoms firms, uh, which we've seen a, a lot of, uh, and, and especially amongst these PE-backed strategics. Any comment there? Yeah, I, I love the idea of, of, you know, connecting in some way to medcoms businesses. In fact, you know, that's that's part of why, you know, we are partnered with Havas. But, but you're right, I think medical, medical affairs, med, med, medcoms of all types are really kind of having their 
their stars rising in terms of the impact that true medical communications and true med affairs can have on the commercialization process. So um, I think we have a lot of friends in the medcoms industry and we, we have a lot of uh, both formal and informal partnerships. So we get to know each other a bit and see whether our core capabilities across our advisory services, our insights and analytics businesses can help empower the medcoms industry. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. We are open minded on, on how uh, we will move forward. But I do believe that what we have to offer would improve outcomes from a MedCom's perspective and make it even more effective. Um, so I do believe there's some synergy there. You know, as I mentioned, as, and as you've seen, you know, it doesn't have to be a Trinity owned asset. Um, if we found the right one. Again, we're, we're open-minded, but I think we really believe in the ecosystem effect of partnerships as well. Um, and so we'll continue to lean into those and see how um, we can use what we've built here at Trinity to improve medcoms across the board. Um, so it's a great avenue of growth. Um, I believe, again, the star is rising for the medical affairs function at pharma companies and um and we certainly want to be a part of that. We, we have a fledgling MedAffairs business, and it's something we're growing organically as well. So certainly a, a great thought. We've heard that rumor ourselves. Um, and, and again, <laughs> something that, that you know, we're interested in, in growing organically and in exploring opportunities inorganically. Sure. Okay. So it's organic or inorganic. Buy or build. You're staying flexible, it sounds like. One last question in terms of the services, the pharma services sector as a whole. Do you think others will follow your MAPI model, M&A partnerships investment versus straight out acquiring? Do you think that you've kind of set the, um, the template, if you will, <laughs> for, for that kind of a strategy? I think we were a pioneer with that strategy. Um, you know, I, I think in many ways, you're seeing the commercialization services companies starting to coalesce. I mean, I think the model that we were looking at as we built our strategy was the, the CRO space, which had consolidated long before the commercial services businesses into some, some bigger companies with broader offerings. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, we're seeing a lot of companies kind of mimic the strategy to some extent, I think where we feel really fortunate is um, in a number of places, the fact that our company was founded on tenets of strategy plus data um, really makes it a very authentic um, growth story for us. And we're not adding on pieces of business that, that kind of don't fit with the, with the story. Um, you know, and I think we're lucky that we've got out in front of that. We were able to get some really nice, other companies to join up in our in our umbrella, and we got our pick of the litter, and we think we'll continue to get our pick of the litter um, in terms of actually bringing other companies on board. But yeah, I mean, you see Lumanity and and Everson, and these sort of um, I guess like like brand creations. They came from from um, I don't know a creative agency somewhere, but Trinity has stayed the same um, as when we were founded in 1996 from a values perspective and from a strategy perspective. So that makes us really strong. Um, and, you know, I think we see some folks mimicking the strategy to some extent, but, you know, I think that we're, we're really delivering on authentic growth for ourselves. Um, and that really makes us different and ahead of the curve. Right. Yeah. All, all those other firms that you named started off as something else, right? And then they, through acquisitions, uh, they morphed into their current um, shape. So right. it's interesting, an interesting distinction there. That's right. Okay. Leslie, I want to give you the last word. What do you think is next for the industry? You know, maybe it's formalizing partnerships versus buying. Do you have a prediction for maybe not who's the next high powered and creative marketing firm to partner with a PE firm, but perhaps, you know, some prediction uh, along those lines? I think we'll see continued consolidation across the pharma commercial space. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we, we want to be, we want to be the winner in that consolidation. I think we believe that we've got the energy, we've got the passion, we've got the people um, to do that. And, and, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to help our clients to revolutionize the commercial model, help our clients 
get their great, great innovations out to patients all around the globe. Um, and yes, we will see other companies rise up and also carry part of that burden. But we as Trinity believe we can be a big part of that story. So uh, we're going to push on. We're not done yet. Great. Sounds good. Well, this has been a fascinating uh, chat with you. Thank you so much, Leslie. Mark, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. This week, the House Committee on Veterans Affairs held what appears to be its first official hearing on the use of psychedelic therapies for veterans' mental health care, dubbed Emerging Therapies Breakthroughs in the Battle Against Suicide. The hearing included statements from Dr. Carolyn Clancy, the Assistant Undersecretary for Health in the Office of Discovery, Education, and Affiliate Networks at the Department of Veterans Affairs, or VA. It also featured testimonies from other VA officials, psychiatrists, researchers, veteran advocates, and veteran clinical trial participants. During Clancy's opening statement, she noted that the VA is committed to studying psychedelics for the treatment of PTSD and other mental health issues like depression and substance use disorder among veterans. The VA is committed to safely exploring all avenues that promote the health of our nation's veterans. Our focus isn't just on finding the best innovative treatments for our veterans, but on doing so safely. This is especially true for studies that test compounds such as MDMA and psilocybin as part of an intensive psychotherapy program to treat veterans with PTSD, depression, and other mental health conditions. The VA itself is conducting some of these studies on psychedelic assistant therapy, but Clancy noted the agency was also looking to outside research on the drugs as well. One recent study published in Nature Medicine found that MDMA-assisted therapy was effective in alleviating PTSD symptoms. Veterans face a heightened risk of mental health issues as well as suicide, with the average number of daily suicides among veterans rising from 81 per day in 2001 to 121 per day in 2020, according to the VA. Veterans health advocate Brett Waters, founder and executive director of Reason for Hope and the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition, said during the hearing that he's seen psychedelic therapy be beneficial for veterans. He noted that veterans often, quote, credit psychedelic therapy not only with saving their lives, but also with helping instill a renewed sense of purpose, meaning, and connection to themselves. With dozens of veterans dying by suicide each day, it is morally unacceptable that so many have been forced to leave the country they serve to access these life-saving therapies. The hearing is another sign that psychedelic therapies are one inch closer to gaining mainstream approval in the U.S. This summer, the Food and Drug Administration laid out first-ever guidelines for psychedelic drug trials. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMNM. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. We have a few highlights that missed the cut this week. Uh, Tallulah Willis, the daughter of Bruce Willis, appeared on the Drew Barrymore show and shared why it felt important for her family to be open about his diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia, which we've talked about previously on the show. And as listeners may recall, a few months ago, we talked about the hashtag hot sauce challenge, a fundraising effort into research for PGAP3 an ultra-rare disorder? Well, there is welcome news on that front, as a recent study found that the AAV9 gene therapy was found to be effective in treating mice suffering from that condition, so there's promise on that front. But we're going to start the segment this week with the news that a jury in Florida awarded more than $261 million in compensatory and punitive damages to the Kowalski family in their well-documented lawsuit against Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. The case was featured in the widely acclaimed Netflix documentary, Take Care of Maya, that was released earlier this year. The upshot is that this was an alleged child abuse case wrapped up in a complicated healthcare diagnosis. The titular Maya dealt with increasingly severe and seemingly unexplained pain starting at the age of 10. After going through a number of doctors and hospitals, she was diagnosed with complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS, and treated with ketamine. At one point, she was placed in a medically induced coma for six days in Mexico to treat her pain, which worked until she relapsed in October of 2016. Her dad admitted her to the emergency room at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in Tampa, where her diagnosis was questioned and her treatment plan was questioned as well before the hospital alleged child abuse against the mother, Beata. A judge ordered Maya to be sheltered at the facility under state custody while the investigation commenced. 
prohibited physical contact with Beata and put restrictions in place on their phone calls. Ultimately, Beata died by suicide in January 2017, and Maya was released without having a chance to say goodbye to her mother. In the trial that started in September, the jury found in favor of the Kowalski family in relation to the charges of false imprisonment, battery, medical negligence, fraudulent billing, survivor claim of intentional infliction of emotional distress, wrongful death claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress causing death, and Maya Kowalski's claim for infliction of emotional distress. I don't know, Lesha or Mark, if you have seen this, it was extremely unnerving to watch as somebody that doesn't even have kids, but the idea of watching this as a parent or as somebody that's ever gone to the hospital and then being stuck there for, I believe the number was around 96 days for Maya at the age of 10. I mean, just at the number again, and the family had spoken about this, the number will never be able to rectify the fact that Beata died during this process and was so emotionally burdened by what the state and what the hospital did, but just a, a truly moving uh, documentary if you get the chance to watch it. I didn't watch uh, the documentary, but I did read up about the case. Um, there was a, a long article in the cut and I was reading that. It definitely gets into some details with it. Um, it's interesting that the alarm bells initially went off while Maya was in the ER at Johns Hopkins regarding ketamine because her mother said that ketamine was the only treatment that could help. Um, so it's interesting that that was like the first concern that, um, you know, the staff had because the reality is that ketamine has actually been approved by the FDA since 1970 for medical use. Um, it's not typically a first line treatment for pain, but it is used for pain treatment when other treatments don't work. Um, so that was one initial thing that seemed off to me, you know, when I was reading this. The other thing is chronic pain. Um, people who suffer from chronic pain are often misdiagnosed or, you know, you hear stories about people with chronic pain going from doctor to doctor, finding that no treatment works, no doctor can figure out what's wrong with them. Um, I personally have dealt with some chronic pain as well. And I've been to rheumatologists and physical therapists and I've had MRIs and x-rays done and no one can figure out what's wrong. Um, you know, as a patient, being sent from doctor to doctor, that can be extremely exhausting and stressful. Doctors can be dismissive to chronic pain patients. Um, the, this idea that, you know, a chronic pain patient is making this up and it's all in your head. That's a common thing that even I have heard. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it was definitely alarming and um, yeah, definitely alarming to, to hear this happening to a child um, and her family. Um, but a really interesting story um, with a lot of complex layers about the healthcare system, you know, ranging from child abuse uh, allegations to mental health, to chronic pain, to ketamine, to, you know, this idea of the Munchausen syndrome. Mm -hmm. So many interesting elements to this. Um, but yeah, definitely a, a, a sad story. And before I throw it over to you, Mark, I wanted to just kind of pick up on a couple of threads that Lesha talked about there. The Munchausen by proxy was an incredibly interesting aspect of the documentary because, and they talk about it too. They say Beata, who I believe was from Poland, she was somewhere from Eastern Europe. They say she was very direct and sometimes that could rub people even that loved her the wrong way. You can only imagine you're admitting your daughter to a hospital and they suddenly become so abrasive that they then level child abuse allegations against you and essentially take your child away from your care. But it's interesting that they talk, they do a deep dive in the story about how there's been an increase as child abuse cases have been reported more since the 1970s. There's been a significant increase in medical child abuse cases, especially relating to Munchausen by proxy. That hasn't always bared out. It hasn't been the same way as like if your parent hits you or if there's sexual abuse or things like that. There hasn't always been that same thing because there have been, you know, cases in terms of people uh, using ketamine or using different drugs. And basically the healthcare system says, no, 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 that's not how we do it. And if you even feigned, even if you have this idea of disagreeing with them, then they have that power to be able to take your child away or be able to interrupt your life. They interview a number of other parents that dealt with similar things. And obviously that gets into an area that's not totally our realm in terms of child abuse and the legal system down there, certainly in Florida, but it was a really uh, disturbing aspect of it. Mark, I want to bring you into the conversation you know, as the parent in this group too. I, I, I implore you to watch it at some point, but I also warn you that it's going to be something that is very upsetting on a number of levels. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. I haven't had a chance to watch it either. 
Um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of the pulling the thread on the ketamine aspect and uh, using that, you know, as, as a painkiller, there was a point and I was reading some of the coverage by the local Fox affiliate where they said one of the, the one of Maya's doctors was cross-examined um, about uh, whether he was aware of the risk of using ketamine. Um, and there was a, a 50% chance uh, of death, um, mm -hmm. according to the medical literature. And it was like, well, you know, you're, you're flipping a coin there. You know, yes, there's a risk with every medical treatment, but that seemed to be a pretty high risk. So um, it seems like the hospital was, was uh, you know, there, there were competing claims on both sides, not, not to be reductive here. Uh, I wouldn't even pretend to be, but, you know, the hospital insisted it was following the state's mandatory reporting law and reporting suspected child abuse. Uh, and when those suspicions were confirmed by a district court, they, they complied. Maya's attorney, of course, accused the facility of failing to protect her child from child abuse, taking advantage of her vulnerability while there during those three months and quote unquote victimizing her uh, during those three months. The bottom line is that the jury found the hospital liable on all seven claims. And just to kind of bring it a, a business uh, angle to this, uh, the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, which is part of the Baltimore-based Johns Hopkins Health System, just reported a loss of $1.9 million for the third quarter. And so there are serious doubts as to whether it can even pay that $260 million award. And just this week, Maya filed a criminal complaint against the hospital for an alleged sexual assault uh, to add insult to injury. Uh, uh, the poor, poor girl uh, that happened to, while there, while she was in their care. So the hospital's legal troubles related to this case continue. Absolutely. And, and I think girl is the inter, just to uh, put a cap on this too, I think girl is the right word to use there because this all happened when she was 10. And even when they interviewed her, a lot of the interviews that took place last year, they have some of her depositions from 2021. She's 15 or 16 years old. She's 17 now. Like the, the, the things that she has gone through that are documented that have been found by a jury, the loss for mother and the allegation of sexual abuse, which was alluded to in the documentary too. It, you, again, you can't even put a price tag on it. And this is a pretty hefty price tag too. You talk about it, Mark, with being you know, over a quarter of a billion dollars. It's it, it outrageous. It's outrageous on so many fronts. Absolutely. It's a, and it's shocking because we all, you know, associate, you know, the Johns Hopkins health system with being one of the best in the country in terms of an academic and medical center. So shocking that this would happen uh, at such a prestigious institution. Lesha, we'll turn it over to you for your uh, TikTok trend of the week. Yeah. So this week I delved into shadow work, which is a new mental health trend on TikTok. Shadow work is rooted in ideas developed by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, repackaged into a viral book written by a self-help author and proliferated across TikTok by thousands of creators spanning from real therapists to spiritual gurus. Supported by the hashtag shadow work, the trend has garnered more than 2.3 billion views on the platform. It involves people digging deep into their subconscious patterns to reach what they call, quote, inner child wounds, and trauma spots in order to get to the root of anxieties, fears, self-sabotage, depression, and other mental health issues. It's seemingly well-intentioned, but shadow work brings with it an array of controversy. Some users claim that shadow work has transformed their mental health for the better, while others have called it a scam and demonic in nature. But what initially gave the trend mainstream popularity was a book that went viral earlier this year, written by 24-year-old self-help author and influencer Kayla Shaheen. The Shadow Work Journal is a mental health guide that allows readers to fill in answers to shadow work prompts as a form of self-help or self-therapy. This book was posted to the TikTok shop in the last few months, and as a result, the book skyrocketed in popularity. This fall, it outsold every other book on Amazon at one point, and nearly half of its Amazon sales were driven by TikTok. So all of these videos show users, um, you know, buying the book, trying it out for themselves as a sort of cheap alternative or complement to traditional therapy. But when you dig further into her background, you find that she's not even close to a trained therapist or a psychologist. Um, she's actually more of a marketing and brand strategist with a focus on self-help. According to her LinkedIn profile, she has done work in content and creative strategy, including a stint at TikTok itself as a creative and brand strategist. She also posts videos on TikTok under the at Zenful Note account in which she personally dictates to her followers how to engage in shadow work. So shadow work is the process of identifying and integrating your unconscious psyche 
the hidden, the darker aspects of yourself that you may feel shame or guilt about. First, your triggers, things that impose strong emotional reactions in you. So like a person, a topic, a situation or an environment that makes you feel uncomfortable. Now, some mental health experts have stated that, um, you know, the trend can be helpful if done correctly and under the guidance of a trained therapist, but that the trend is missing a lot of what Carl Jung originally intended with his concept of the shadow, which is like a very complicated topic. Um, Yet another example of people turning to to influencers on TikTok who package themselves as mental health experts, which leaves real life therapists competing with those voices. I want to hop in there first, if that's fine. Um, I know that when we have Lesha run through these social media stories and usually there's the don't try this at home you know if you're not a professional and that applies to when we were talking about shaving your teeth down or you know all these sorts of other really troubling and I would almost say like physical aspects but the same applies to mental health too and I'm I'm here as a proponent I'm in therapy I you know we all have stuff that we have to work through we all have our own demons and traumas and all that sort of stuff but when it comes from what essentially feels like a perpetual cycle of somebody that had worked at TikTok that knows how to brand themselves, that is in creative content, all that sort of stuff, but is passing themselves off as some sort of self-help, self-help author or therapist wannabe or something. Really troubling from that. And I know that we have a shortage of psychiatric and psychologist help in this country, and that's a whole separate issue. But does it mean that you have to go and buy this book, which you talked about has been you know, huge on Amazon and it's fed by that TikTok cycle. I don't know. It gave me all sorts of yuck when I was reading it. It made me really um, unhappy to kind of see where the state of everything is. I don't know. Yeah. When, when um, I, I want to pull on the sort of self-help thread a little bit, uh, Jack, and, um, and to Lesha's comment, when, when you described that some people view it as demonic, you know, that the hair <laughs> stood up on my, on my neck, but you know, that increases, unfortunately, the, you know, fascination with things like this, but uh, you know, getting back to self-help, it remind, reminds me a little bit of the comment I made on an earlier show also in regards to one of your TikTok health trends, Lesha, um, about how therapy speak has kind of pervaded our lives. You know, when non-licensed people say things like that's toxic or, you know, you're stepping on my boundaries or we need some self-care. The fact that that talk has seeped into social media can be a good thing in terms of people being able to talk about and give voice to their feelings. And to the extent that it gives them agency to get help without fear of stigma, that's a good thing. Where it's dangerous is that many of us, when we adopt the role of professional therapist, tend to get it wrong. Everything Mm -hmm. becomes a red flag. You know, I don't take out the garbage. Hey, I'm a narcissist. (laughs) And one line in your story, Lesha, where you describe the numerous shadow work videos showing TikTok users trying the book out for themselves, quote unquote, as a sort of cheap alternative or complement to traditional therapy, said it all. A little bit of knowledge is indeed a dangerous thing. Delving into Jungian theory is incredibly complex. And as you wrote, this is one area of mental health work that's probably beyond the scope of the typical TikTok self-help guru. Yeah, it's just one of those things where we're not Carl Jung. We're not Freud. We're not all these other people. And we can cosplay all we want as it. But at the end of the day, just go see a therapist or go to BetterHelp or any of these online services. Like There just has to be something else out there other than you know, buying into what is seemingly the latest fad in terms of, oh, this could be mental health, but it probably is just, like you said, Mark, just mimicking the language that we heard. And that was a big thing, not to completely derail the conversation, but like the Jonah Hill thing earlier this year where he was having the issues with his ex-girlfriend and it was kind of the weaponizing of therapy language. Like in a way, we've all become a little too comfortable with it. And it's all helpful to destigmatize. And some people do need to say you are stepping on my boundaries or that's toxic behavior or that's narcissism. It's not Mark not taking out the trash narcissism, but it's some other sort of narcissism. But the idea that, you know, we're all suddenly, you know, deputized to be therapists. I don't know. That's just not. Ugh. Absolutely. The, the weaponization is the other downfall. I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Jack. So our last story also comes to us from the world of TikTok, And this is a wild story. Devlin Sear, a 38-year-old woman who went to the hospital to receive an ostomy only to wake up to the news that she had stage 3 colon cancer. The story was first reported on by People magazine. While Sear was under anesthesia, doctors had to give her a hysterectomy because, as she said, quote, everything was like concrete. Her husband was told by the doctors that she had a tumor lodged in her uterus that was causing chronic pain, constipation, and inflammation. 
see her post her video to TikTok to share her story and see if others had gone through a similar experience and if they had anything to say about living with cancer and infertility. She has remained active on the app as she begins a six-month chemotherapy process since her cancer has a 50% chance of recurring. The TikTok has already gained more than 1.5 million views. A new patient influencer is born. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, People, of course, is, is a magazine normally known for dishing scoops on our favorite celebs and what the royals are up to. But, um, you know, you got to love that these true health sagas have become a part of their coverage. And mm -hmm. I agree. Lesha, a, a new um, health influencer, has been born here. How can you not be moved by what this woman has gone through on her journey, the no-win choice that her husband was forced to make for her, and then her experience of waking up to discover that he had authorized the doctors to form a hysterectomy, which saved her life, but of course left her unable to have children. Personally, I was moved to read about how this man was there for his wife, how he broke the news to her and has stood by her. I find it to be a wonderful story of caregiving as much as it is showcasing the patient experience. Yeah, I don't think this will be the last we hear about this case. And it'll be interesting, too, because I was kind of perusing through the comments and just the fact that other people have been through something similar, obviously disturbing. I think it's something that people always talk about where it's like, oh, what happens when I'm under anesthesia? But, you know, things can happen and, you know, people have to make quick moves on the medical side and certainly on the, the caregiving side, too. Yeah, I would say this is a good follow up to the uh, shadow work topic because it's, you know, a sign of how ticked up can be beneficial mm -hmm. and you know when it comes to health um, because patients can share their stories like this and reach other patients who have gone through similar things and create a sense of community um, so you know i think that's definitely one of the positives to be taken from this and i'll just add on to that too lesha because i think that it's so important to highlight the the community aspect of not only TikTok, but just, you know, patient populations in general. Last night I was at the Dexcom uh, dinner that in Soho, they were, they were honoring uh, for World Diabetes Day. And I heard from a number of different patients there, some of them influencers, some of them just, you know, regular Joes like us. And they were talking about the fact that hearing other people talk about living with type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes and having similar complications and highs and lows means something to them. And I can only imagine for this woman, you know, having gone through something that is so traumatic and sudden to have other people saying like, hey, it happened to me. It wasn't good, but here's how I got through can really be uplifting in a way. Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, I also, again, I, I identified with, was his name Greg, you know, and kind of facing that impossible decision, but, 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 but doing it and then being there on, you know, when she woke up and then having, you know, his wife ask him, did you even ask them to save any of my eggs? Yeah. <laughs> and of course that never occurred to him, you know, it wouldn't have occurred to me either, but like, it's like, you know, typically, you know, as, as guys, we try to do the best thing, you know, when we're faced with decisions and then our wife always points out something so blatantly obvious that yes. we feel like, like it idiots, you know, afterwards, but why such didn't I is, think such of that? life. Why didn't I think right, exactly <laughs> so important, you know, that was a terrific discussion. And uh, thanks everybody out there for joining us in this week's episode of the MMM podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's show. And we'll be joined by Dr. Gregory Scott Brown to discuss prioritizing your mental health during the upcoming holiday season. Take care, everybody. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sone. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs> <laughs>